This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth-hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. Maritza and I are here to take you through chapter four of Flow, this book right here, The Psychology of Optimal Experience by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. We were just commenting, if you were coming on early, that this is one of the more intense chapters of the book, but it does get followed by a really fun one next week. So we're going to go through this intense chapter and build up for all the excitement of next week. We have a PowerPoint presentation to get through today, especially for those of you who may not have read the chapter yet or perhaps read the chapter a while ago. And then we will have our typical format we do here, which is we're going to open the floor up to people who have read the chapter, who want to comment on anything that we probably will have missed in the truncated presentation Maritza and I are going to give. We're going to have time for breakout rooms, and then we will do lightning question rounds. But I'm going to turn it over to Maritza to get us started here with the presentation. Okay. Well, guys, um, I'm going to, um, I'll start here. And then what I'd like to do is I'll include the link for those of you who would like to grab the um, presentation for yourselves. It'll be in the chat. Look for that in the next couple minutes. Okay. So we have a very quick recap here. Um, just what is flow, right? This is important. We're going to be going through this every week. So just this is the definition that Mihal Mihail gives us. And it is the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at great cost. And that's, you know, some people call it in the zone. You know, you're losing track of time. This is the, um, the concept of um, flow. And we're, you're going to hear us as we go through speak of you, flow is that perfect balance between skills and challenges. And we'll, we'll, that's a concept that we'll revisit every month, um, every month, every, um, every other chat. week, every chat. Yes. <laughs> okay. Quick recaps here. Um, we have, um, ha chat. I don't know. Am I reading these? I, we can just maybe go through them really quickly. So we're already up to chapter four in chapter one, which was called happiness revisited. We had a discussion of thinking about what exactly happiness entails. MC uses this phrase, optimal experience. Flow is often described as that state when you both feel your best and perform your best. So chapter one just gave us an overview philosophically of what happiness is all about and about flow. In chapter two, we started paying attention to the nature of consciousness, the anatomy of consciousness, as he calls it here. And we looked in depth at the importance of what we pay attention to. We had this idea that the self becomes more complex as a result of experiencing flow. And in this chapter, we're definitely going to go into more detail about that. And that was chapter two. And then do you want to take us to chapter three? Yes. So last time we really got into the different characteristics of the flow state. And Moritz even started listing them out here. So these are the, the characteristics that MC identifies about 
how you know you're in a flow state. So there's this idea of clear goals, immediate feedback, a balance between challenges and skills, the experience that awareness and action seem to merge, that you're completely absorbed in the task at hand, your sense of self disappears, you're no longer self-conscious, your sense of time becomes strange and distorted, time might seem to go by slowly or pass by really quickly, and the experience does feel like an end in itself, and there's also this paradox of control that you sense when you're in a flow state. And so that then takes us to chapter four, in which we're going to get into the conditions of flow. This week, we're first going to start to explore the way I like to think about this chapter is it's about society and the self and flow. So first, we're going to think about flow and society and culture and what are the conditions of culture that lead to flow. And then we're going to talk about the self and flow. And we're going to talk more about this idea of the complexity of the self, this idea of the autotelic personality, which we're going to have a definition of that, go, go into this idea of how the self grows in complexity and, and what it means to be an autotelic personality. Uh, but maybe Maritza, you want to give us a quick rundown of this beautiful graph. I love the way you, you, you added all the colors and it's really well done. I like it. Thank you. So what I'm trying to sum up for you here is how we are not static. And we, or we should not be static either. So what this graph is doing, it's giving you a visual presentation of the, um, the long explanation given in the beginning of this chapter. And basically what MC is explaining to us is that when, you, like, when you're starting to learn something, your skills are low, right? Like for example, Maritza's guitar skills, guitar playing skills are like at a negative one, right? So if I start plucking and every time I get that, you know, that A minor chord, correct? I'm like super stoked. So it takes very little to put me in flow state. So I'm all the way at the bottom here, A1. I get into that green flow channel very easily. Now, hypothetically, in, you know, two, three months or years, I'm going to become very proficient at those few minor chords. So they're gonna bore me, right? So I'm no longer gonna be like totally in the zone when I'm practicing and getting them correctly. So now what's gonna happen there is I'm gonna move on to A2, I'm gonna get bored or lose interest. How do I get back into that desired green patch? The way to do that is I need to learn something new, maybe try a song. And when I try a very short, easy song, then it'll push me back into that flow range. If I, get overly ambitious and choose a very hard song, the frustration level is gonna be such, and possibly the bleeding fingers, that it will not allow me to get into that flow state because I will have overreached. So it's, you have to find the perfect sweet spot and you have to have an awareness of the fact that everything changes. So you're not gonna stay there. Once you find yourself out, you need to figure out how to get back because always you want to get back to the green flow channel. And what this um, chart is just trying to show you is that anxiety, frustration, fear, boredom, routine, or loss of interest, those are all things that lie outside of your desired path. And they are things that 
either you fall out and find yourself in these things or they actually pull you out. And those are things to watch out for. And it's through, and this, this is what we're learning here, right? You, if you can have more of an awareness that you're sliding in either direction, you can work towards moving yourself back into that desired range. And so in a nutshell, that's what he spends the first, I don't know, five, six pages saying. I think that's perfect summary. And, and, and I love even how you put the flow channel in green. It's, it's the go channel. Sometimes people call this the sweet spot or the Goldilocks channel. And just to point out that there is this progression that, you know, when you start out, it is pretty common that, you know, you start something, you learn the skills, and then those skills, you master them enough so that, you know, you're in that realm of boredom, and then you're going to try to grow. And most people, when they're trying to grow, overshoot it. So you end up in that A3 spot, but then it's precisely by trying to tackle something really hard that then you get back to, back to the flow channel, and now you're in A4. So there is this growth. And the way MC puts this is that you you grow in complexity. The self becomes more complex because you've developed more skills, more abilities by keeping within the flow channel. So next we're gonna get into first, as I mentioned, flow and society. And there's this idea of flow and culture. So first a quote. Potentiality does not imply actuality and quantity does not translate into quality. So how does this apply to flow and culture? There's the idea that the culture you live in can influence how you experience flow. And in fact, most cultures are structured to minimize disorder in terms of setting up norms, beliefs, opportunities for fulfillment, there's the example here that successful governments will convince people that supporting the government will help them achieve happiness. And that while cultural structure can limit people's opportunities, it can also streamline their success precisely by giving them this structure, by helping them channel their energy into achieving a narrow set of goals. We know that clear goals are one of the things we need for flow. So the structure can give us that sense of clear goals that make it easy to get into the flow state. Uh, MC points out that we have many more opportunities to enjoy life than our ancestors did, but he also points out that interestingly, surveys of happiness do not seem to indicate that it is in any way correlated to technological achievement, health, the economy, or any other external stimulus. One of the things he points out is that we have more leisure time now than people ever did throughout history, but that leisure itself although people sometimes think that leisure will lead to happiness, that all the surveys show that that's not necessarily the case, that it's not leisure that leads to happiness, that this is perhaps the paradox of leisure, that we think we want more leisure, but it's actually when we're involved in a task that's meeting our challenge, challenge level, that that's what gets us into flow, that that's what gives us a sense of fulfillment and happiness. And then finally, people who are in the same environment, culture, and all other circumstances have varying degrees of happiness. And if all external causes are eliminated, it must be something to do with the individual. And then next, we're going to start thinking about flow and the self and what aspects of your personality or your character perhaps you might need to develop in order to be someone who is able to get into a flow state on a more regular basis. Anything you wanted to add there, Maritza? Oh, you're on mute, Marisa. 
Oops, sorry, I forgot. So, you know, I actually struggled a little bit with this section. Um, it's very long and he points out a lot of things that I'm like, have we though? Like he makes these like declarative statements of how we've grown past these things. I'm like, I'm not convinced, but I, I will say that by the end of it, I, I did agree with the overall premise of what he was saying. Um, and, you know, what struck me most was he does tell us that, um, you know, he says, it's the warnings, it's the, um, there's all this good that you can get from the cultures, but, you know, once some things become a part of the norms and habits of the culture, then people assume that that's how things must be. And when they do that, they come to believe that there's no other options. And to me, that's a great example of the cautionary tale of how remaining static is a sure impediment towards achieving flow. Remember that green, I like to think of that green swath in the graph as a path. You know, where we're, we need forward movement constantly. And if you, if you make, if you stand on top of too many of the presupposed notions from your ancestors and your cultures without ever questioning them, well, then you find yourself unable to move. And that, that one piece was really striking to me. Thanks. I think that's a good point. To, to connect that with the graph you showed us, there's that danger that a culture can get stuck in what's that A2 position where you've just stagnated with whatever skills you have or presumably with whatever structure to the culture that you have. And now you're just there with routine and it becomes boring, stagnant. There is none of that challenge that's then gonna push you on this forward path of growth. All right, so let's then go now to flow and the self. And we're gonna delve into this topic of the autotelic personality. First, a quote, it is not easy to transform ordinary experiences into flow, but almost everyone can improve his or her ability to do so. So here's this definition of autotelic. Autotelic are these two words, these two roots, auto and telic, auto meaning self and telic meaning goal. And so something that is autotelic pretty much means the goal is itself. And to me, I always link this term with the idea of intrinsic motivation, which I feel has become the more common term that we hear now that is getting to the heart of what MC is talking about in this chapter. That as we're talking about happiness and what produces happiness, there's certainly a way in which we can be motivated by extrinsic goals. There's a prize that we want to win. There's money for a job. There's status or there's something that that's not the activity itself that we want, so that we engage in an activity to get that other thing. And that's the extrinsic motivation, it's external, as opposed to a task we will pursue for its own sake. And that's what autotelic means. And then he's gonna talk about this personality, a personality that you can have that makes it more likely that you can be someone who get, gets involved in these autotelic tasks. And he's gonna explain that to a certain extent, this might be something that you're born to, but as he points out that even if you're not born in a way that you might be prone toward this you know, autotelic personality, it is something you can do to cultivate as well. 
So in terms of people who might find it difficult to, to be autotelically oriented, you could say. Uh, people who have, for example, attentional disorders uh, for schizophrenia um, or have too much, as he says, stimulus over-inclusion will not be able to focus on a task at hand because flow is all about being completely absorbed in the task at hand. If you're someone who can't get absorbed, can't focus on that task, it's going to be much more difficult for you to get into flow. On the other hand, if you're someone who is too much uh, conscious of your own self, if you have too much self-consciousness, too much self-centeredness, then similarly, you're not someone who's going to be able to focus on the task at hand and have that autotelic experience of being absorbed in that task that's at hand. So if you have either of those two poles, it's going to be much more difficult for you to get into flow. Um, he points out here that environmental obstacles to enjoyment can be natural or social in origin. So this might be something that you're born with, or maybe it's a way that uh, you, know, you were raised a certain way, you had early childhood experiences that maybe made you prone to be these ways. And it points out the fact that even the most severe natural conditions cannot eliminate flow shows us that nature alone cannot prevent flow from happening. Because presumably even if you had any of these problems, there's well, perhaps there's even medication you could take or just even habits that you could begin to cultivate within yourself that would make it more likely that you'd be able to have this kind of focus you would need at the task at hand to be able to get into a flow state. Uh, he points out that when society suffers from anomie, it is not clear what is worth investing in. When it suffers from alienation, one cannot invest psychic energy in what is clearly desirable, desirable, and then at both the individual and collective societal obstacles, what presents flow is either the fragmentation of attentional processes or their excessive rigidity. Which again, it's just pointing out that in order to be in flow, we need to have that experience of being absorbed in the task that we are doing. So we have to be able to cultivate, if it's not you know, natural or second nature to us, we need to work at being able to develop that ability within ourselves so we can have that kind of focus. Yeah, I just wanted to add on re really briefly here that, uh, so M MC makes a statement when he's speaking of, you know, some people who may have uh, impediments to um, achieving flow state, when he's describing people who can't get into this personality, he, he makes a statement that when a person cannot control psychic energy, neither learning nor true enjoyment is possible. And I find that to be a very impactful statement for all of us, because even, even those of us who are fortunate enough to not have a pervasive um, and or systemic issue like schizophrenia or schizophrenia or any of the other um, um, issues that are described in this section, many of us, will experience throughout our lives, different moments where we have this psychic dissonance. And it, it can be for a variety of reasons. You know, it could be, you know, life is just throwing you a whole bunch of crap or you're overwhelmed or overstressed or under, you know, sleep, sleeping or something, you know, and psychic energy, you know, you have to get your energy from somewhere. So if you're spending all, if, if your psychic energy is something that's just happening to you and external forces are using you like a ping pong, 
then you don't have the control necessary to find any enjoyment or any learning. Like think about college days. For those of you who attended college, how many times did you sit there reading that same page over and over because you were too exhausted or the person next door's music was bumping too loud or, you know, so what I hear him saying here is just this whole, he's acknowledging that we as humans have so many things and, and barriers to our ability to control psychic energy. But it's not, I mean, he's talking about them on a much grander scale and some people who are absolutely incapable of getting there. But many of us are fortunate in that we may be able to wield some control over some of these things, even if we find ourselves in a current phase where our psychic energy is right now just too disjointed. It's something that we can work on. And the key here is I like that he says neither learning nor true enjoyment, because let's not forget that flow is just an extreme version of enjoyment, which is what you're looking for, right? That meaningful thing that puts you into constant state of enjoyment or flow. So here's just a little bit more about the autotelic personality, neurophysiology and flow. Um, so it kind of points out or nothing can be said universally of human capabilities without addressing the fact that human beings are not uniform, just as some people are born with better muscular coordination as possible that there are individuals with a genetic advantage in controlling consciousness, uh, individuals who require a great deal of outside information to form representations of reality and consciousness may become more dependent on the external environment for using their minds. They would have less control over their thoughts, which would make it more difficult for them to enjoy experience. By contrast, people who need only a few external cues to represent events in consciousness are more autonomous from the environment. They have more flexible attention that allows them to restructure experience more easily and therefore to achieve optimal experiences more frequently. And the association between ability to concentrate and flow is clear. It will take further research to ascertain which one causes the other. And it does seem to be, I believe, that there is a spiral effect here. Uh, one, one of the, the phrases sometimes we, we hear with flow is that the more flow you get, the more flow you get, which means that it takes a certain amount of attention and focus to get you into the flow state. But then once you're there, then it, it creates a kind of virtuous spiral where then it just becomes easier than to get back into a flow state. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get. And then just a little bit more here about the effects of the family. Um, he points out what relationships we have with family often form patterns for the relationships we have with others. And then he, he goes through these five characteristics. I think he tried to be a little cute here and tried to find words that were all going to begin with C, even if they weren't necessarily the best term, I believe, for describing what these conditions are. One thing I even found interesting about this particular section was he was describing these conditions in terms of what we might see in family situations that can lead to more flow. But I even think these are interesting to explore these characteristics as things that you could have, for example, within any kind of group, for example, maybe even within our uh, 52 Living Ideas meetup group, within our friend circle, 
within ways that we try to control our environment, even if we're living by ourselves in our own home or apartment. So the five characteristics that he talks about, the first one was clarity. Again, this was idea of having clear goals and immediate feedback, which leads to more flow. Then he uses the word centering, which I take it he means to, to be present, which again is just this idea of you know, being in the moment, being thoroughly absorbed in the task at hand. Next was the idea of choice. Uh, we had talked about the idea of control, the importance of volition, that they're doing this because it's something that they will find intrinsically motivating and it's not coming from some external source. Um, and then also the idea of control that the, the, the confidence that the child feels in his ability to remain uninterrupted, that no one's going to interfere so that there's control over that ability to be in the state and do the task. And then the last C is challenge, uh, which we, we've already been talking about a lot here, this idea of the challenge skills balance and being in that perfect flow channel where you're in the sweet spot between challenges and skills. And the only thing I wanna say about these is that, um, we'll, and we'll see a little bit in the next section, he's not saying that these are absolutes. If none of these were present in your childhood or upbringing, MC is not saying that there's no hope for you achieving flow. That's not at all what he's doing here. This, so, so I just want to put that out there because, you know, if, if one finds oneself coming from a situation where they didn't have the luxury of such optimal conditions, it could be um, a little daunting looking at this this checklist, right? And going, wait a minute, if I don't make this checklist, what are my chances of flow? No, no, don't worry. He's going to spell out for us why this is, you know, he's saying this, there, there is some effect here, but don't despair, there's hope for you yet. Exactly. I'll say, I took this to mean that if you are, for example, a parent, a grandparent, maybe an aunt or an uncle, that you might want to think about these five things in terms of the environment that you're providing for children. If you're a teacher, uh, you know, if you're someone who's trying to create a, a healthy environment for children, an environment that will optimize their ability to get into flow, you might want to pay attention to these five elements and you know, make sure that your children will have this. But the way I see it, you can also be that child. When you get to be an adult, you get to parent yourself and you can pay attention to these five elements and think about how you can bring them into your own life. As I said, even if you are someone who's just living by yourself or trying to, to create a, a culture and a community with another group of adults, this is something that we're always still children. And to me, this is part of the beauty of flow that we're always growing in complexity of self, ideally, if we're on that flow channel. So we can, I believe, always find ways to think of how we can bring these five C elements into our environment and ideally have more flow in our lives. So lastly, we're gonna talk about what MC here calls the people of flow, um, which again, as, we, as we've been pointing out already, I think is a rather interesting phrase because I don't think there are necessarily you know, people who are born with flow or that you have to be a certain 
type of person to get into flow, or if you haven't had success with flow yet, that you're just doomed to never have flow. I think he gives us lots of hope that we can all become people of flow, even if we have, for example, schizophrenia or something. Maybe there are perhaps severe cases. I guess if you are you know, in a vegetative coma, you can't get into a flow state. But it would seem that with, you know, with all of even what we know now about flow and modern medicine, that there's ways to perhaps mitigate some of the actual um, you know, real disease states, perhaps that might prevent someone from getting into flow. And then beyond that, I think it is just learning about these conditions that that get us into a flow state and then being really conscious about how can we bring these into our environment so that we can become among the people of flow as MC calls them. Um, but he's going to say that people who have, uh, you know, this autotelic personality find it easier to achieve flow as compared to others. And I do believe there, there may be something to this. There may be some of us who, you know, given just the, the personality that we are born with or that we develop very early in childhood, that some of us already have these traits that make it more likely that we're able to get into flow. Um, he's going to say that the key trait of this personality is what he calls non-self-conscious individualism. And he gives some, I believe, really powerful examples of, for example, Holocaust survivors. He gives the example of, of Viktor Frankl and others who've been in war situations, prisoners in war camps, people who've survived torture, and how did they get through it? He, so he points out this, this idea of non-self-conscious individualism. He says people who have that quality are bent on doing their best in all circumstances, yet they are not concerned primarily with advancing their own interests because they are intrinsically motivated in their actions. They are not easily disturbed by external threats. With enough psychic energy free to observe and analyze their surroundings objectively, they have a better chance of discovering in them new opportunities for action. And he points out some of us are more predisposed to the street, but it is an ability open to cultivation and it's a skill one can perfect through training and discipline. And that last statement is the most important thing that we should take away from this chapter. Some of us are more predisposed to this trait, but it is an ability open to cultivation and it's a skill that one can perfect through training and discipline. To me, that is the most important thing of this chapter. He takes very careful, um, he, he's, he, he's very careful to ensure that he points out to us all the potential impediments, all the possible um, barriers, all the research that's done looking into this, that, or the other thing. And then at the end, he tells you, but it's a skill. This is a tool. And I think that's really important. And that's the reason why we're all here today, because this is something we can use to make our lives better, to help us as we move forward, seeking our meaningful path. And that's why we're all here. Um, I, I like two things that he says to us here. You know, he says, um, without interest in the world, a desire to be actively related to it, a person becomes isolated into himself. And to me, that's 
a really softly stated but impactful comment also the fact that there there's no way to work on controlling your psychic energy unless you have an interest in the world how your interest looks is going to differ from the way it looks to me but just having that base level of curiosity of interest that is separate from you know an inward looking interest then there's we have less of an ability to flex that muscle and to work on it to make it stronger so i think it's one of those things where you know the um and he he also says when adversity threatens to paralyze us we need to reassert control by finding a new direction in which to invest psychic energy a direction that lies outside the reach of external forces so that's kind of funny because you have to have an interest in external forces in the outside world right but you also have to be careful not to let that those external forces have their way with you basically we get back to the need for finding i like the way joya called it the sweet spot right we and and what i call it is forward movement so it's one of those things you know change your perspective don't get stuck with only one perspective because you can't grow you can't find your flow or get back to your flow if you allow anything either internally or externally to isolate you or to lock you in to one thought one perspective thanks guys I just realized we didn't read this quote that you put up here at the top, and I love this quote, so I want to make sure we read it. It says, when adversity threatens to paralyze us, we need to reassert control by finding a new direction in which to invest psychic energy, a direction that lies outside the reach of external forces. And I absolutely agree with what Maritza was saying. And personally, I found in this chapter the examples of the people who dealt with the extreme adversity of concentration camps, prisoner of war camps, and how they were able to survive by finding a direction in which they could place their attention in a way that was positive and still give them this sense of an overall overarching hope and optimism, even if they were being realistic about the immediate situation on the ground and that that was so important for how they were able to maintain their sanity, maintain their spirit and survive what to me is just unimaginably horrible experiences. So now it's the part of the meeting where we get to open it up to all of you, um, especially when we want to hear from people who have read the chapter, because in this one, there is a lot that we did not yet talk about. So if any of you want to share what you took away from the chapter, anything that Maritza and I didn't mention yet, you can type exclamation in the chat. You can raise your hand as well uh, as part of the Zoom mechanisms here. Yes. 
and there was a lot like we didn't even talk about he had a whole section on flow and religion for example that i thought was really interesting we didn't even get a chance to explore that uh, looks like joe has something to get us started here you can always count on joe <laughs> no it was a fantastic presentation you guys actually really covered i think uh the most important parts of the uh chapter um, you know, the thing that I found to be the most interesting to me uh, was the idea of how games are structured and how that feedback loop is so critical. And if you see the idea that the simplicity of, those, of the feedback loop allows you to get to a state of flow. Now, that actually is important um, because you know that the number of variables are actually controlled in, the, in a game setting, like or just the example of playing a guitar, or the example of playing tennis is what the one is what is used in the book. There's a set of rules that have goals that are clearly laid out, so you're able to understand what you're actually moving towards. Therefore, the state of flow is much easier to get to. Um, this is interesting because it kind of does support a lot of what he's saying when it comes to schizophrenia or attention deficit disorder or Asperger's because the reality is, is that the more stimulus that you have coming in, that you are basically not able to convert that psychic energy into actually a state of flow. Now, that being said, I will say it's interesting because one of the other aspects of that is people that have uh, these disorders many times, uh, at least like with Asperger's and ADD, they also have a, a tendency to be hyper-focused. And when they do get hyper-focused, that they're actually unable to pull away. So I would actually equate that. Now, whether that is actually enjoyment or not is up for debate, but there is a concentration and a blocking out of everything else which kind of falls into this definition of flow. Uh, so I found that to be a really interesting part of this chapter, how he aligns games. And he even has a schema from an anthropological uh, point of view uh, that you know, there's like four different sets of games even, uh, where he even talks about the expansion of the mind and things along those lines. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, the the other, I mean, so that it's just an interesting correlation between all of that. One other thing that was, I found to be, um, uh, and I think Joya already mentioned it, is the, the goal of a culture to essentially uh, limit the amount of chaos in a, in, in, in a society um, as a way of actually reaching a, uh, and that, but that no, that no society per se has really been good at really creating a culture where uh, there's an ideal flow state. There are places that are happier, but I think those happiness uh, uh, measurements are actually, or those misery measure, measurements, even in certain circumstances, um, um, are pretty subjective at this point in time, uh, many of them. Uh, so they're often used with well-being metrics, um, but they are pretty they are pretty subjective in their self-identification. Uh, they're not necessarily um, done through uh, what would be called the, like a state of flow. Um, so it, it, it's a, it's an interesting chapter to me. I I don't know if a society can create a 
situation where you're going to be, con I think more people can have an opportunity to be in a state of flow than not. But I do think that it's a personality trait as well. If you saw the people that were in the camps um, or the people that were in extraordinary difficult, extraordinarily difficult situations and that they were still able to survive and change the circumstances to meet what they, to dictate what they uh, felt um, to, so that they could survive. Uh, I think that that speaks a lot to a person's personality um, uh, being a factor when, when achieving a state of flow. Uh, I do think the most important part about this chapter is that it's a skill. And I actually, when I started, when I first started this, I didn't necessarily look at it as a skill, uh, even in a con, uh, like a side conversation with Ash, um, we were almost talking about state of flow being like intuition, like something that you reach, um, that it's universally accessible. Um, but in this chapter, it really does call out something. It's completely different. It's a skill to be cultivated, uh, which is a different way of looking at it than I, than I initially thought, because it's, uh, yeah, that, that, that was kind of the big takeaway for me as well. No, I just go, go, Marisa. Sorry, I just wanted to um, just very quickly um, comment. I agree with so many of the things you said here. I, there are a lot of things I see that way. I find it interesting, you know, this last bit that you said is that, right, that, that's kind of the same way I first thought about it. But as I continue to speak more with Joya and with Ash on the subject, it does, you know, you, you get into deeper conversations of, well, what can I do to get back to this state? And I, I, don't, I guess it wasn't immediately clear to me that the moment I'm pondering that, well, I'm essentially trying to take some control over the, you know, the winds in the house of getting into this state of flow. Because you just don't think of it that way, but I guess that's what the book's trying to do. Joe is trying to make us think of it that way. I would agree with that. Thank you, Joe. You did. You brought up so many things. I'm really glad you brought up the whole point about the games. That was something we didn't really even get into, but I thought it was really fascinating. Even that character, the way he broke down the different kinds of games uh, based on that work of the anthropologist that he was citing there. And I will agree too, that to me, this was one of the biggest takeaways of this book. And, and I do believe that this is the point that the way I see it now that that there is a way in which flow is this state that is accessible for humans and people have gotten themselves into it. And perhaps there were personalities that were more prone to it. And so those people got into more flow. But to me, the real value of this book is MC researching this and really trying to break it down and presenting it to us as a skill that can be learned by breaking it down and saying, okay, here are all of these elements. Here are, for example, the five C's of what you can do for a, in a family setting. By, by naming it, calling it flow, identifying that there is this state that's possible and then breaking it down into, okay, what are the conditions? What, what's the you know, environment that we need to have so that flow can become a skill that we can train and not just something that we might happen to stumble into. And some of us who have a personality that's more prone to it, will get into more often. I like to think too that, well, I hope that as humanity progresses, that we do not have more people who find themselves in concentration camps and prisoner of war camps, but that ideally, hopefully the value of this work is that 
when people will, I do believe, still encounter really challenging circumstances that precisely by studying flow, they, there will be more of us who will be able to be like the Victor Frankl's because we can learn from his experience, we can learn from what MC has identified about flow and develop this personality in ourselves. That's my hope. So next up, we have, it's all of the J's again. We have Judith and then Jack after Joe, who followed Joya. Judith. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so I was agreeing with all the things Joe was saying, especially when he was talking about um, how much of it is a personality thing. Now, you know, whether you want to nurture that or, you know, um, invest in creating that personality, that's separate. I'm not saying born with it, but uh, like a, a personality attitude is, uh, as opposed to how much is external for us to achieve flow. Um, because in, um, and I, I almost feel like adversity can sometimes channel your goals if, um, so it, I think sometimes adversity creates a potential for you, you to um, actually use flow. Like if you didn't have any adversity at all and you were just like kind of living your life and not challenged in any way and um, you, you might never experience flow, but if you, have challenges that aren't necessarily things that you want or created, they might actually, without you realizing it, create opportunities for flow. Like the people in the concentration camps, I don't think they were analyzing, let me do this for flow per se, but they did stumble on something that was working for them. And one of those things, I, what I understood, so I marked off, um, you know, the, um, and I'm sorry because I joined 30 minutes late, so I'm sorry if I'm saying things that somebody's you've gone over. But I did mark off the channeling of attention to a limited set of goals. So when you have adversity, you have to screen out things like what will you tackle, and 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 um, and what what will you just let go, um, and then in that um, I think sometimes you know flow can come if you are not overwhelmed. If you are able to say like okay, so. I gotta somehow figure this out. Um, what else? Also, I kind of, that part where he was talking about different cultures and he talked about the, is it the Ike of Uganda? I don't know if I'm pronouncing Ik of Uganda. Um, and, he, and he says, um, I, I really didn't like that when he said, um, have institutionalized selfishness beyond the wildest dreams of capitalism. And then I was like, what the heck? What kind of selfishness is it beyond the dream? So I looked into it a little bit. And, um, but it's a few days ago that I did that. But basically what I took away was that that's perhaps um, a wrong characterization of the people um, based on some um, work that had been done that hadn't been very thorough, um, you know, anthropologist work that that had kind of not been fair to what was going on there. And essentially, um, they, there were many instances of um, them, just the opposite. So I think it would be wrong um, to say that there's a culture that doesn't, that, or that, that that could be lacking in any human society culturally among people because you are going to have people that are not just 
programmed to be selfish by their culture. I, I do think that, that there's that in humanity and that that does surface even in the worst circumstances. Um, um, well, that's all for now. I might have marked off a couple other things, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Judith, and thank you for sharing that. I think it's one of the, the difficulties, but one of the benefits of reading a book that's 30 years old now is that there is more research that's come out since this book was published. And I didn't know anything about, I, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of that tribe, but now I'm going to be really curious to look that up. So thank you for oh, sharing that. Can I continue? I just remembered the other thing I wanted to add. Oh, okay, yep. Yeah, thank you. So briefly, though, it was about the schizophrenia. Um, because I just wanted to throw in there. So my cousin had schizophrenia, um, and he, but he was fine in the winter time when um, he was, you know, teaching skiing on the Swiss Alps. And so I was just thinking as you guys were talking, um, not even before, but um, so, but he didn't do well during the summertime. And uh, I think may, perhaps um, that you know, narrowing those goals down so that he, you know, like did not get distracted because how distracted can you be if you're skiing? Uh, um, of course, he wasn't just skiing, he was teaching, but, you know, he had specific goals and um, I, I don't know much else about him. I just know that, that during that season, he was fine. And then when he wasn't doing that, he wasn't. So even in such situations, um, if we can find, it seems like if we can find those places that bring us flow, we can make ourselves more healthy. That's a great observation. It's something we're going to talk about later, this idea of uh, finding a, a primary flow activity. So I think, you know, just all of us, given our interests and our predispositions, you know, will have certain activities that that, that appeal to us that will get us into a, as a flow state. And certainly for people who love skiing, skiing is definitely a high flow activity. And that's just a fascinating example of how when, when he was able to get involved and have that flow activity as part of his routine daily life, he was in a much healthier state than you know, a time of year when he could have that. Let's move along though. And we're gonna hear from Jack and then Mike. And then I think we're gonna do our breakout rooms. Um, okay, so I've got a few points. Um, I guess I'll start off with uh, consciousness and neuroscience. So this book was uh, published in 1990, 31 years ago, and a lot's changed since then, uh, especially as you know, we look at the brain and, and what neuroscience is telling us. That's a relatively new discipline um, or field. And so I, you know, I started thinking about consciousness. And um, so on page 23, he states that consciousness is a result of biological processes in, in the nervous system. Um, and then towards the end of the, uh, the back of the book in the notes section on page 247, um, he kind of agrees with a reference uh, from somebody who had published a paper in 1969 that essentially says consciousness Conscious experience is an internal event about which one does directly what one wants to do. So with those two things in mind, you know, where it's, it's what, what, what the one wants to do and then like it being a, a biological process as part of the nervous system. Um, so on page 73, you know, and this was talked about before with the games, the four different types of games where you have the uh, Agora, Elia, Illinix, and Mimicry. And uh, specifically on page 73 in the vertigo section, um, he 
and I'll, I'll just like uh, quote here. He says, any activity that transforms the way we perceive reality is enjoyable. A fact that accounts for the attraction of conscious expanding drugs of all sorts, uh, from magic mushrooms to alcohol to the current Pandora, uh, Pandora's box of hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic chemicals. But consciousness, and here I underline, but consciousness cannot be expanded. All we, do, all we can do is shuffle its content, which gives us the impression of having broadened it somehow. So that, that line right there, I have to disagree. And, you know, because again, 31 years has changed, you know, passed since he wrote that and, and what we know about, you know, some of these chemicals, specifically magic mushrooms. So um, psilocybin affects the neurons. We know that just a month ago, Yale released a study where they were doing um, a study on mice and they found that psilocybin actually allows for, and, and I'll, I'll quote actually the study, it says psilocybin induces um, rapidly persistent growth of neural connections in the brain's frontal cortex, increased number of dendritic spines in the size within 24 hours of administration, changes still pre present a month later. And, um, you know, so I think, and, and also there's been studies at John Hopkins and a number of other um, universities and institutions dealing with magic mushrooms and psilocybin as a treatment for PTSD, anxiety, depression. So I think like what, what maybe he's thinking about is the actual experience, but perhaps not the effect later on. And that's really dose dependent. So, so that I have to point that out that, you know, that, that part I kind of disagreed with him on. Um, so then on page 80, uh, he talked about the, Shushwap tribe and how, uh, you know, the elders essentially came up with the idea of, you know, moving every 25 to 30 years in order to introduce challenge, which was like pretty ingenious because, I mean, you know, when talking about flow, it's really about getting into that uh, the sweet spot between anxiety and boredom. And so introducing that challenge, um, you know, they, they view that as something. And so it got me thinking too about like retirement you know, people kind of retire and then they, you know, they lose interest in life sort of. And, you know, I mean, so there's an argument there to be made where perhaps we should never retire. Perhaps we should always be doing something to, you know, be engaged in, in life. Um, and then page 83. So he, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this uh, a couple of weeks ago about how, he, you know, he's not the greatest writer. <laughs> you know, I, I love, uh, you know, what, he, what he's talking about in his book, but he definitely hides certain things. You know, so um, the last time it was really the eight components of enjoyment was hidden in the paragraph as opposed to breaking it out in item list. So um, on page 83, he talks about uh, enjoy, you know, so um, third paragraph talks about, yeah, oh, um, compared to people living only a few generations ago, we have enormously greater opportunities to have a good time, yet there is no indication that we actually enjoy life more than an ancestor than our ancestors did. And then he talks about three things. Our, uh, opportunities alone, however, are not enough. We also need the skills to make use of them and we need to know how to control consciousness. Uh, oh yeah, so, so I broke that down as opportunities one, skills two, and three, how to control consciousness. So that got me thinking. I mean, the key there is really the how to control consciousness. Obviously, you know, we've got, in our society today, we've got one and two. I mean, we have the opportunity and we have the ability to create skills, but I think that a lot of people are hung up on how do you control consciousness? And that breaks out into things like, you know, establishing good habits and, and having inertia, um, grit and not looking at failure as a negativity, but an opportunity to learn and grow, positive psychology, 
uh, having curiosity, understanding limits. So, you know, limits in terms of things that, again, new fields, behavioral uh, economics and behavioral psychology, reframing, um, having a scientific mindset or a scout mindset. Uh, and then also, you know, going back to neuroscience, understanding that neuroplasticity, how the diet affects if, if what we're talking and he again, he talks about consciousness and it's really part of the nervous system. It's a biological function. Well, there's a number of, of things that have an impact on that biological that on that nervous system. And, and so, you know, things like neuroscience and diet, you know, directly has an impact on that. So anyway, um, yeah, the, how do you control consciousness? So, I mean, there's there's a lot of different factors and it's things that, you know, it's definitely interesting and something I personally am going to delve deeper in. I mean, I have been, but I'm going to delve even deeper into it. Uh, page 87. So, Maritza, I think it was like a month ago, and Judith just recently, you know, talked about this whole idea of focusing bandwidth. And, um, yeah, so on 87 at the bottom, it says a group reporting more flow was able to reduce mental activity in every information channel, but the one involved in concentrating on flashing stimuli. So, um, yeah, I, you know, the whole idea of like optimizing, I guess the bandwidth that you have in terms of psychic energy uh, seems to be key. And then finally, um, you know, so he, he gives examples about, uh, you know, well, we know we know the flow chart where it's um, anxiety, finding the balance between anxiety and boredom, and then you know also talks about the self, and you know we touched about that already with the um, you know people who are schizophrenic, and then people who are um, or have attention deficit disorder or stimulus, um, uh, too much stimulus, you know they can't control the stimulus that's coming in terms of like ignoring the things that don't matter, and then on the other side, you know the self-conscious or the self-centered. So essentially he talks about like fluid erratic versus rigid and tight. And there seems, you know, there is a balance there that needs to be done. And then as far as culture, he mentioned anomy and alienation where anomy is no rules or structure and alienation society imposing individual on the individual's goals. So, so three examples of like, there's a balance, right? It's all about balance. Um, yeah, so I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, again, the all really great points and thank you for bringing all of these up and I have some, a lot of things that I could say to that I'll just pull out two. one I think you know you're just pointing out again how much we've progressed since 1990 when this book was written so thank you for just pulling out all of the additional research and then I definitely want to second your idea of how I also agree that I don't believe human beings should ever retire. To tie that into what Maritza was saying before, she talked about this importance of having forward movement, that that's what the flow channel is all about. And the way I see it, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I think learning about flow helps us think about, okay, how do we continually raise the challenge, challenges for ourselves in a way that we're still always in this flow channel and growing in complexity of self and continuing to grow and, and not to die. If I can just um, add just a little bit onto that is, so just to be ornery, I'm gonna disagree. If you wanna retire, go for it, but don't stop. Find something else to do. Retire from one job or task and move on to a different one. Um, and that to me highlights um, something that, you know, of the, some of the many thing, great points that uh, Jack was saying, this um, question of perspective, you know, it's one of those, it's the, you know, Andrea said it to forward movement that I think that it's one of those things where, yes, I mean, the entire book is about how do 
we control consciousness at the very base foundation of what we're talking about and what we're trying to do here is we're acknowledging that flow is a state of consciousness it is a desired state it's one we want it happens to us sometimes but we would like to find a way to make it happen so that we can experience it more happy so basically we're all trying to become okay maybe addicts is a little too strong but soft addicts for this state of flow is what we're all seeking um and the balance balance is so primary and so important and i really do believe that it's impossible to find this state of balance without a constant shifting of our perspectives and a constant forward movement uh, thank you jack all right mike is up next and then we will do breakout rooms yeah i really enjoyed the um the whole aspect of flow being a skill that can be cultivated and that the people that were in the most extreme situations kind of looked into the minutia. If you're in a jail cell, they actually look at the floor and the surface and they found little cracks. I think they were writing poems and sharing it on, on pieces of soap. And um, I also found that you can, you can also work on it in the mundane in our own lives. Something as simple as shopping you know, I shop at a local Trader Joe's. It's the nearest store. And over the years that I've been there, I've gotten to know some people personally. And I found that through some interactions that I almost feel like I'm in a flow state and I'm just shopping. You know, I'm there to shop. But, you know, there's a guy, Nick, I got to know who's a big Yankee fan. I'm a Mets fan. So I will, um, I'm not uncomfortable being two customers back and saying to Nick, I'll wait on his line on purpose. I'll say, do you accept Met fans on this line? And if there's two people in between us, more often than not, somebody will turn around and smile. And all of a sudden, it, it's just making that day go quicker. Uh, there is another woman named Mary there who saw me talking to the chocolate bars. You know, when you're getting online at a Trader Joe's, they conveniently put the chocolate bars right before you check out. So I'm standing a couple of customers away and I start talking to the chocolate bars, you know, I'm not going to do it. And she has no idea. And then she caught on what I was doing. And it just kind of, you know, it just makes my life so much easier when I'm there. And I'm used to doing that. But if you're not, don't go join Toastmasters as a first step. Like if you feel introverted and you want to get into flow by performing, don't join Toastmasters, the first step. It's a, that's a huge leap. Go to Trader Joe's and just, if, if you feel insecure inside, a lot of people are just not comfortable talking to strangers. They're all wearing name tags. Just make it a point to talk to the person and say their name or, you know, just go out of your way. If you see somebody in the aisle that's picking something up that you like and ask them if you like it, like take those tiny little steps in the mundane, and before you know it, your next trip to a place like Trader Joe's, you're kind of looking forward to it, and you've created your own little laboratory for flow, you know? So that was it. I now officially want to go shopping with Mike <laughs> next time I have to go grocery shopping. <laughs> All right. Let's get ready for breakout rooms. So sometimes Marita and I, we pair, but we didn't talk about it. So you've thought of, 
You're on mute. Joya, you're breaking up. I actually can't hear what you're saying at all. Did you want to say anything? I can't oh. hear you. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll, I'll just give you guys a question, which is think about, you know, we, we talked about this idea of flow as a skill that you can cultivate. So in the breakout rooms, maybe think about ways that you can cultivate flow in your life more. So I will start the breakout hey, rooms for everyone. Right, Joya? Oh, yep. Um, uh, Margareta, I would like to speak first before we do the breakout rooms very quickly. I just saw her, her hand oh, up. Oh, okay. Okay. So, thank you. Thank you. Hi, good morning from Melbourne. <laughs> uh, I was, I'm just thinking about uh, Jack's notion. Okay, Margarita, really quick, and then we'll be Yeah, okay, about Jack's notion on psycho, uh, the mushroom. Um, I think one thing uh, that differentiates this experience, experience of being absorbed into this uh, activity that you enjoy so much, it's more about the pursuit of optimal life, not the avoidance of pain because uh, usually people try to avoid this uh, not, not good experience because they're inflexible. They try to avoid it. And that's the indicator of having mental problems. So perhaps this pursuit of flow experience is, is, is seen as uh, an effort of human to be more healthy, to, be, to, to have an optimal life rather than avoiding uh, pain, something like that. And I think also in the study suggested by the Yale uh, researcher, they realized that this improvement of cell due to uh, the mushroom can be enhanced if it's accompanied with psychotherapy because the growth of cell can induce more learning and learning can be uh, uh, achieved by having counseling or other kinds of learning that will help them to deal with the depression. So yeah, I know, I know, but they're already a standard uh, actually uh, announced by the uh, uh, by Yale researcher. I think you can Google it. Uh, they they start to make this standard because they believe uh, the mushroom can be helpful for depression. But again, I think uh, it's it's more about how we can be more flexible in our life. We can manage how we can access this optimal life rather than avoiding pain. I think that's differentiate flow with uh, some kind of addiction to to certain experience. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Margareta. Jack, did, it looks like you wanted to just jump in and say something quickly in response yeah. to that, and then we'll do the breakout rooms. Yeah, I would just say that you know, there, there's a lot of substances that can be abused, you know, I mean, food can be abused, you know, they're like, there's, there's all kinds of things that can be abused. The reason why I bring it up is because again, you know, the point that he was making was that consciousness can't be expanded through use of something like magic mushrooms. But now we're finding out that it certainly does have an impact on neurons in terms of the growth of, of the dendritic spines and, and uh, you know, points within the neurons. So, that was basically, you know, but in terms of, of an escape, you know, using it as escape, I mean, you, you could watch a bunch of movies and escape that way. <laughs> like, I mean, anything can be used as escape or a lot of things could be used as escape. Um, but, but in the context that I'm talking about magic mushrooms, it's in order to expand consciousness. And that's something that's still an open question. 
Absolutely. And, and flow itself, I mean, Maritza described this as maybe we want to become soft addicts, but one of the dangers of potential dark sides of flow is you can become addicted to a flow state in a way that is dangerous. Uh, you know, one of the things that we actually know now, uh, you know, since the 1990s, since there's been more research on the brain and on flow, there's research that indicates that what goes into a flow state is the release of all of the almost all of the feel-good neurochemicals all at once, dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, oxytocin, endorphins, that, that neurophysiologically this is what being in flow entails. And there's a, a phrase that, that we have in the flow community of don't trust the dopamine because flow states are associated with this high spike of dopamine. And of course, it's great. It's a feel-good chemical. It allows you to perform at your best. It's got a lot of great advantages. And in a real way, we do want to be, I like Maritza's phrase of a soft addict, but you don't want to become a hard addict of dopamine. And that, that is a real, a real danger. But on that note, let's go to breakout rooms. And uh, the, the question that I put forward to all of you was to think about perhaps how you can cultivate the skill of flow, since that will what we've been talking about, but we brought up a lot of really interesting subjects so far, I think, in this particular discussion. So you can let your group feel free to pick what you want to talk about. So I will start the breakout rooms. Oops, let me see. What's anybody going to do here? All right, starting the breakout rooms now. So now it is time for our lightning round as everyone else is back here. This is the opportunity where based on what you talked about in the breakout rooms, maybe what you've been thinking about as part of our discussion, you get to share the best question that's come up or the best idea that you've had so far. We'll take all of the questions and then go through as many as we can and we have about a half an hour left here. So again, if you would like to share a question, share a takeaway, again, you can type exclamation in the chat or feel free to raise your hand. We have Craig up, Craig and then Jack have their hands up. All right, Craig first. Um, just want to express the gratitude for all you guys doing the reading, so I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> and um, man, the, the final takeaway for me, the question I guess was who or what influenced me? And Nizzy was going to the mother. I started going to the grandmother. Then I realized the instability always changing was what I really needed. You know, there's times in my life where I'm like, man, I had to move. I got, I've got a friend and then I had to move and move and move. And, but that's what made me comfortable. You know, like now it's like change gives me consolement because I know I get down on it. <laughs> I wake up every day knowing it's going to change. A surprise ain't no surprise. It's all good. Or it just is. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and so, and maybe we can make this into a question of, you know, dealing with this idea of constant change and can we find comfort in constant change? Next questions are going to be Jack and then Margareta. All right. Um, so, so my question is, um, 
what's your what's your opinion about state of flow as purpose? Like, what is it? What purpose does it serve? So, what I mean by that is, um, it seems like a lot of our you know our bodily our function our behavior is essentially a result of evolution, right? It, and really, it comes down to survival, right? So, um, from so, would you agree that you know then flow is you know is is some type of uh, you know, survival mechanism that's been developed over time. And perhaps like from a survival standpoint, is it like an overdrive? Is it like going into overdrive mode? Um, so on page 62, he talked, you know, uh, MC talks about the loss of, of self-consciousness. And, and we, we talked about that earlier about the whole bandwidth thing, limiting your bandwidth or limiting your attention on, on you know, a singular uh, focus. And, um, yeah, so I wonder how much of this is like evolutionary, uh, natural selection. Um, and yeah, I just wonder like, what, what do you guys think about that? Like, again, what purpose does it serve? You know, is it, yeah, so just a general question. Thank you. So I'm, I'm gonna put this down as um, what, perhaps what evolutionary purpose does flow serve if, if we think it has one. All right, next question is gonna be from Margareta and then Joe. Uh, I think one interesting topic that we discuss in our group is about uh, this flow. Is it really something that we can cultivate, uh, like exercise the, for having it, or is it just something that should come really naturally so you, you can flow with it? Uh, that's one interesting discussion we had. Thank you. I like the way you put it. So, uh, you know, is flow something that comes naturally or is this flow something we cultivate intentionally or do we go with the flow and get into flow to get into flow <laughs> okay and then next question is from joe yeah i mean i'm trying to think about how to phrase this but essentially i know that they he explicitly states that you know no culture per se has really done a good job of creating us uh an environment for people to get into a state of flow. But what environment or what culture do you believe is the ideal culture for a state of flow to become in a state to, am I, I'm not necessarily being clear here, um, to achieve a state of flow? You know, uh, is it, you know, it can be any culture in the world, but why? I mean, could it be American culture because of the time we have and that we're just not cultivating or things like that? So what culture is ideal for the state of flow? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah, I guess I would say, I don't wanna go so far as a system, but yeah, culture was mm -hmm. probably the best. It looks like Allison has a question next. Um, does structure create, um an environment that allows flow uh, to happen more readily. Perfect and succinct. Does structure create an, uh, an environment that lets flow happen more readily? All right. Anyone else want to bring up a question? All right. Otherwise, let's start working through these. We have a lot of really great questions here. Maybe we'll even start with um, Jack's question and go back and start thinking evolutionarily, uh, which was, you know, what purpose does flow serve in terms of our survival? If we oh, think could it I does. just, mm -hmm. could I just quickly Clarified? clarify? Yeah. 
So the reason why I asked that question is because, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, maybe some of you, I know I did, I jumped to the idea of like, well, you know, say you're being chased by a whatever, right? Flow will allow you to solve problems or, you know, solve that problem or, uh, you know, get over that hurdle or whatever challenge that's coming up, right? But we have to take into account, you know, she sent me high's chart, which is essentially flow as a channel that, that occurs between somewhere between anxiety and boredom. So in, in that sense, you know, being chased by a bear or whatever would generate a lot of anxiety that you wouldn't necessarily be in a flow state if we went with that definition. So I just wanted to clarify that. So again, like, you know, knowing that, then yeah, what purpose does it serve as part of our evolution? No, thank you for the clarification there. So if anyone wants to share their thoughts on this question, you can type exclamation point in the chat or raise your hand. Mike has something to say. Yeah, I think um, in terms of evolution, I think it might be more the fight or flight reflex would be the survival component. And flow to me might be more of the fuel for human achievement rather than survival. It's what, you know, the fight or flight keeps us from, keeps us alive and the flow state is what takes us more on the achievement part of the spectrum. Anybody else want to add to that? Uh, Craig wants, wants to add something to that? And then Margareta? That zoned for a second there. But what popped out was, what purpose does flow serve? Comfort, joy, peace, knowing by feeling, sensing even what's not there. Right, so thank you for sharing the list there. Next, Margareta has something to say. Thank you, Jack, for the question. Uh, I think uh, why it keeps being passed on from generation to generation because it enhances our ability, uh, like uh, Mike said, it's uh, achievement. So if we feel good about something, we know we're doing it right. And we just want to enhance ourselves in that. So that's why perhaps our ancestor becomes better as as hunter or because they feel good and and they pass that to generation they teach the the this learning to their children and we come we become better 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 and that's why we don't extinct at least to some extent uh, so yeah it gives us pleasure and also it gives us uh, the sense of success and that's why we pass that into our generation and our generation becomes better thanks yes thank you Margareta. I'll share. It's always been interesting to me that flow is defined as a state of both simultaneously peak performance and optimal experience, that these even go together and that that's what flow is. I guess if you think about you know, what evolutionary purpose does that serve, that it's interesting that we perhaps feel our best when we do perform our best. And it seems that, that flow is the state that allows us to to be at our best, to both feel our best and, and perform at our best. Let's then go to another question, though. Let's do Joe's question. We'll go from evolution to culture. And what culture is the ideal, do you believe? Uh, we might not yet even seen it yet, uh, but maybe which culture most uh, approximates uh, the ideal culture for flow, or what do you think would be the ideal culture for flow? Maritza has something to say on this one. So 
I don't think um, the ideal culture exists in today's world. Um, I think we're still too varied and different. Um, but I would say maybe if I was absolutely forced, the culture of your own making would be the ideal culture. You know, become your own culture. Find that fit between your psychological needs and what is available. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I would go with there. Allison has something to share on this one? I would say France, <laughs> especially <laughs> Paris. <laughs> they have a long history of it. <laughs> They're very, very good at it. <laughs> Yes. When, in doubt, so, when in doubt, the answer is France, is Paris. Yeah. Always go to Paris. <laughs> Paris. When in doubt, go to Paris. <laughs> go to Paris. <laughs> I want to say, when you ask this question, one of the things that I started thinking about, I want to connect this to the discussions we've been having with the Louis Sullivan meetup group, where we've been talking a lot about Montessori. And it seems to me that Montessori thought a lot about a kind of culture that brings out flow, that the whole idea of the prepared environment in Montessori to me seems like something that's ideally suited to think about what are the challenges for this individual child and, you know, the, the kinds of skills that are going to allow them to meet the challenges where they're at. That, that's something I would share, but I guess that's not necessarily a, a place. I, I don't know, Joe, if you think that a, a school system can it's be a culture. No, I mean, I think that, that it's an excellent example of, uh, you know, how you create a, an environment where flow actually can exist um, because something too structured actually takes it away. Uh, and well, interestingly enough, a structured environment, well, I won't go into it too long, but I'll just say really quickly, structured environment where you have the goal you may not fit into, um, but you know what the goal is a certain percentage of the people are going to get to a state of flow, whereas a large other percentage of the people are not. So it's, it's I think that's an example of it being too rigid mm -hmm. of a structure um, where you're talking about the traditional school system and the Montessori system is much more flexible and amenable where you're actually able to reach a state of flow much more, uh, much more simple, uh, uh, quickly. It's always interesting to me, too, that the phrase they always use there is the prepared environment. So it's not chaos, clearly. Like there's some thought, there's some preparation, there's some element of structure that's there in the environment. But the, to your point, but it's not overly rigid. It's not something where every child is going to be forced to do the same thing because that might not be ideal for the individual child. So it's interesting, that idea of the prepared environment. Um, and next up to talk, we have Jack and Margareta, I think, to say something here too. Yeah, so I would agree with um, um, what was just being said about you know the, the balance between st structure and um, the freedom where the structure isn't imposing on the individual's goals. It, it really comes down to you know the idea of, of goals, uh, the ability to develop the skill. You know, having an environment or a culture where where an individual can set goals, the ability to develop the skills in order to and the opportunity uh, to match, and then, and then, yeah, being able to to uh, take action towards that. Um, so I don't know a lot about Montessori schools. Uh, I'm definitely now 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 you 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 guys have really piqued my interest. I'm going to look into that. Um, but I've always thought about you know maybe the ideal you know type of school would be a school that isn't as structured as as you know, our educational system nowadays, but is geared more towards the student. 
So maybe early on you identify what the student is interested in and then provide the stimu stimulus and the information and, and things like that in order for, for that. And that's not to say that that child would be set in that one, you know, whatever they're interested in at an early age. Um, but you foster that essentially, the things that, that really the child is interested in, you allow them to develop the skills and, and you know, build the goals and et cetera, et cetera, basically providing the opportunity. And, um, you know, so this, this topic really makes me think about the idea where during the, you know, he'd mentioned in the industrial revolution, you had children that were um, at five years of age in satanic mills, uh, working 70 hours a week. And then you know, he'd made the talk, you know, the mention about slavery and things like that. And so, no, there's, there definitely isn't a culture in today's society or a country or, or whatever, where, because when you're going to have different classes, I mean, there, there's going to be either people are going to be bored working in jobs that they don't want to do, um, or they're going to be, you know, filled with anxiety because they're in, in jobs that like, you know, maybe are seen highly, but uh, they're not getting enjoyment out of. So, you know, the amount of people that can get flow, I mean, I think there are people, you know, obviously that are living in the state, states of flow constantly in our society, but, I, you know, it's not the majority. So, you have to take that all into account. A culture where that optimizes flow for everyone. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's it would be utopian society, but I don't think it's out of, you know, the realm of possibility that we could develop one. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, Jack. Next up, Margareta, I think, has something to say about this one as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think in line with uh, Jack's idea, uh, I think uh, this question about what environment that cultivate flow, uh, we can also rethink because I think in the previous examples, even in, in, in Nazi camp concentration, people can obtain uh, flow. So to some extent, what is ideal environment? Is that really the important components for obtaining flow? Or is it the sense of agency of the person that they he or she has the ability to, 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 to manage uh, his or her own happiness or optimal life so by that i think we need to consider because if sense of agency perhaps that's a part of personality you just born with it you, you're lucky if you have it and if you don't well sorry but you need to uh, work extra to get that so uh and actually that leads to another question of me being in this in Melbourne, we're having uh, almost a month of lockdown now. <laughs> so this is not an ideal environment. Uh, we also have curfew. Uh, so <laughs> beyond 9 p.m., we cannot go out. Uh, so how and flow, I think, is really important for uh, other people in the other parts of the world at this time. So how we can live in this moment to obtain that, to have that sense of agency that we have the ability to access our flow and feel okay with ourselves. Yeah, that's one thing, so thanks. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Margareta. I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through in Australia right now. I think Joe has a follow-up and then Allison has something to say on this one too. Yeah, I'm just gonna be very quick here is that, um, and something that it, you know Jack said actually speaks to this is the idea of something where the 70 hour work week where you know, children were working for, uh, you know, essentially nothing. And I think any time I think of, of a book, uh, Why Nations Fail, 
And one of the reasons why nations fail and then in a state of chaos ensues, and that actually makes it impossible for a state of flow, is there's a lack of a justice system. So they spoke about the idea of, while there is no perfect justice system, there are, you know, there's corruption everywhere. However, they compared Mexico and the United States, where somebody like Carlos Slim essentially goes unchecked by the government in many cases, whereas Bill Gates was at least taken to uh, for antitrust, uh, um, taken to court for antitrust uh, for essentially with Netscape. And so that they use that specific example where there's a form of justice that is in, where there's a sense of, uh, of fairness that exists. And there's a lot less chaos in a in a in a in a in a, in a uh, country that would have uh, a lot more uh, let's say equitable laws in place. And I think that that creates the environment where okay, if you feel like everybody has a fair shot, then you have a lot less chaos and a lot more opportunities for flow and work in getting away from those 70 hour work weeks for, for children was a part of that. That's part of justice as far as I'm concerned. So the closer you get towards justice, the more uh, equitable a society, I think the closer you're going to get to, uh, to a state of um, where people can achieve a state of flow in a practical sense. Yeah, thank you for the follow-up. Uh, Allison, I think has something here to say too. Um, I was it was relating to what you guys were saying about the um, Montessori schools versus a traditional school. Um, one thing that's really, I'm, I'm a teacher, that's really been a big part of education and I'd say really like the last 10 years is differentiated instruction. And so um, the idea is that you're still providing, every child, children need structure, they do, they need some structure, but you you change the structure depending on what the child needs. So um, children at different levels um, of reading ability or math ability or whatever are gonna get slightly different material. Children with, um, with you know, I mean, every, you know, anything you can think of, you're gonna alter it around their needs and around where they are. And the idea is that you're supposed to meet the child where they are and then take it from there. So, um, I, I, which I think is great. I mean, it's, it's not so easy to do especially when you have 32 kids like I do, but, um, but it works and that's what kids need in order to be successful because we don't all learn the same way at all. Um, we learn in very, very different ways. So you have to be able to adjust it around what they need. But within that, there is always some structure because they kind of need, they need that. But anyway, that's just my little point. Yeah, no, anyway, and then thank you for sharing your experience there as a teacher, that's great insight. Sure. Yeah, uh, Maritza has something to say. Yeah, you know, I, I really like um, the way that uh, Margareta said, you know, you become your own agency. That, that um, just really speaks to me from, you know, what I'm saying. When I say you become your own culture, I, I see that as being very similar in such that, you know, even when we're describing, you know, these examples, these extreme examples of people in concentration camps, or the example given in the book of the prisoners who wrote a line of of translated poetry are in a bar of soap and pass it around as they memorized it. It's this, it's this aspect of finding yourself with so little control and 
still managing to find a kernel of control and saying this one little thing, this is mine. And I think the joy in being able to grab onto that tiny kernel is what allows us to enter into this state of flow. And that's the manner in which we take control of the flow and, and you become you know, your own agency, your own, like you're a culture for yourself or, and you see it in even you know, this country, this country tends to be a very individualistic society. And yet people form many cultures. I mean, we are a culture. Those of us who show up for 52 Living Ideas, we show up faithfully on a regular basis with a common goal of learning and moving forward. So I, I think that that's, that's the key there. It doesn't have to be, you know, if you're waiting for your nature, I mean your nature, sorry, for your nation to be the perfect culture, it's a long wait. Yes. And I think as people were pointing out, hopefully you don't have to wait for your nation. I think this is even kind of what Margaret Retta was getting to. And this idea that, you know, the people who've been able to find flow in the most unimaginably awful circumstances that you don't necessarily need that to be able to find your own flow. We do have a couple minutes left, but I do think this conversation we've had has segued nicely into Allison's question, which was all about, you know, do we need structure for flow? And I think we've even kind of been answering a little bit to the extent to which we need structure for flow, but maybe if anybody wants to say anything a little bit more on that topic, and then I do want to let you know, there is another 52 Living Ideas meetup right after this one at 9 p.m. It's the Jordan Peterson series. So we are going to cut this off in just a couple minutes. So anybody who has maybe any final thoughts before we sign off on this meetup and get ready for the next one. Anyone want to share any last thoughts here? If I may, uh, Joya? Yeah, go right ahead, Mike. 52 living ideas, time well spent. How's that? Look so forward to these meetups and talking to all of you. You have no idea what a bright spot in my life all of you are. I really appreciate your time and the effort and great job, Joy and Maritza. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I'm so glad she can't let us do this because for me, 52 Living Ideas has been one of the ways that I get flow now on a regular basis, what he created here. So to me, it's the perfect thing that I, I get to get in flow and we're talking about flow. But let's wrap this one up. And uh, as I said, it's a different link. And I didn't look up the link for this one, but it is a different link. You can go to the 52 Living Ideas meetup page and Jordan Peterson starts in five minutes from now. <laughs> We'll see you guys uh, two weeks yes. on Friday, 7 p.m. The next chapter is fun chapter. It's yes. the body in flow. So yes, we're going to talk about music and dancing. We're going to talk about delicious food and eating. There's even sex. So we're all going to bring our sexy on and hey, talk yeah. about flow two weeks from tomorrow. <laughs> so clothes optional, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, videos are optional as well. That is true. <laughs> I don't care what you see. I'm an open book. I'm just see. <laughs> you guys are hilarious. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Love you. <laughs> 
This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit delvetravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.